Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It speaks about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening. Welcome to Our Common Ground, yet another edition of looking at the oppression of black people, the crimes of the system, and the revolution that we need. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm so glad to be with you tonight. And we thank you for your support. Don't forget, you can join us on Facebook, on Twitter, Janice at OCG. Go right now to your Twitter account and let your followers know that our common ground, the, the, the sacred ground, the sanctuary where we bring black ideas, notions, solutions, and inspiration to empower black America to achieve itself. Tonight at our common ground, we're uh, welcoming back one of the finest black educators, authors in America, um, our brother David Eichard, who writes that if black people of visibility and legitimate power 
Who are we talking about? We're going to talk about that with David Icard tonight. If they ignore the issues of interracial class, if they ignore the repression, the oppression, and the ugliness contained within our own community, they do so at their own peril. And in the context of race and sex and gender and new cultures and subcultures within our community. He raises the question, are we willing to make the necessary sacrifices? I raise that question all the time. What are we willing to do to be and get where we want to get? David Eichardt, of course, is a scholar, and he asks, in, in another context, to create the truly democratic society that we want. However it is asked, it is at the basics. And my favorite philosopher, my favorite American philosopher, James Baldwin, asked the question, what price the ticket? So tonight at our common ground, we're going to welcome Dr. Eichard back to our common ground, and I will tell you more about who he is. We hope that you all are well and that you are working to help us grow and develop. You know, it, it's really uh, an interesting thing. Uh, I've been broadcasting our common ground now for 28 years. And there have been some very exciting times and some very low vibes over 28 years in this whole notion of black empowerment. Uh, I find it interesting after the last four years of uh, broadcasting only on a weekly basis, I, I find that I lose my dots. And that's where you come in. You've got to help me continue to keep the dots connected because our very survival um, as a community uh, lies on our ability to connect all the dots. So I, I want to tell you about some things that we are doing. We are uh, preparing. Uh, you, you know, I always say to you that <clears throat> this is my life's work. Uh, Monday through Friday, I go to the work that supplies my needs uh, to be able to sustain my life's work. Um, and so in, in the very near future, I'm going to be hanging up um, not my law education, but my uh, plaques and all that stuff from the that part of my professional life, and I'm hoping to come back to be able to do until I can or can't anymore our common ground on a daily basis. In order to do that, we're going to be in a new era. We're not going to terrestrial radio. We are connecting to some terrestrial radios by providing live streaming of the show on Saturday night. I'm looking and working on having 10 stations across the nation who are blasting music that's not helping us at all. It's a big job to be able to convince program managers that 
while they play music 24 hours a day, they are playing it to a dying community and that they need to interject some positive instrument uh, for empowerment, for clarification of the issues so that people can even extend their support to those radio stations. So that's one thing that we're doing. The other is that we're getting ready to write this big grant um, for a number of funding streams to be able to do this program uh, in a way that I'm accustomed to doing it. I mean, you know, y'all out there, y'all think Blog Talk Radio is ragtag, but we run it. We roll with this stuff, uh, no matter how. But we are going to be doing some things. And please be reminded that you can listen to our archives here at Blog Talk Radio, but you can also listen to us on TuneIn and Stitcher. Uh, online on your smart devices and as well as your um, uh, smart telephones, cell phones. Um, So look for us there. And don't forget to check out our website, ourcommonground.com, our community forum at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com and all those other places. And don't forget that we sponsor TruthWorks Network with Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. and uh, The Alpha Show, serving hot grits with his politics on Friday night at 10 p.m. Uh, so we've got some things that we need to, and there's one thing that you can do for us. You can, uh, when we sign grants, we can't say we have 10 people who follow us on Facebook. You get my drift? So if you can go to our Facebook page and and like us and and I mean I'm I'm not getting it. All the people that you say that you do not support that we should not support in our community, they got friggin' thirty five thousand Twitter followers or whatever, and um, I'm spending every waking hour that I'm not trying to make um, um, the grocery money. Uh, on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, robbing my family of my lovely presence all the time, and I'm not getting 35000 so something, something's wrong with the math going on in our community, and we know that. So thank you for being with us. Help us out. Uh, help us move forward, uh, and um, we can do this thing. we got stuff to do. Uh, in the midst of the hype, and it was a very bold thing for him to say that we should put the brakes on all this talk about post-racialism and that we've reached this new era, that in fact, in all things racial, America is essentially a nation of cowards. And um, I, thought that was a, I thought that was a great moment politically because it, first of all, it took a lot of uh, hustle for him to, at this particular political moment, to state this when everybody, including black America, was high on uh, um, Obama mania. And um, what, it, what it helped contextualize for me, though, was the, and anticipated, was the problems of jumping too far ahead and erasing the real material class, gender, and social dynamics that are still at play that's keeping 
a good portion of uh, African-American community entrenched in poverty. And so I have been actually working with a um, colleague of mine in social work on this essay about Barack Obama and post-racialism, and and it had gotten published in the Journal of Black Studies. And after hearing that uh, speech by Eric Holder, we had decided that it would be a good idea to actually engage in a book study length um, on this subject of post-racialism, and we titled it after Eric Holder's piece, Nation of Cowards, to, um, to, to try and generate some of that same kind of uh, political boldness, speaking to the, the exit dynamics of um, entrenched uh, uh, poverty and racial inequality uh, that Eric Holder was uh, invoked and got in a lot of trouble for that, to, to begin to kind of mine some of these issues as they affect specifically the, the black community, but America at large. The election of Barack Obama gave political currency to the white idea that Americans now live in a post-racial society. But the persistence of racial profiling, economic inequality between blacks and whites, disproportionate numbers of black prisoners and disparities in health and access to health care suggest there is more to the story. Tonight, we are pleased to welcome back to Our Common Ground, Dr. David Eichert, as he addresses in his new book, Blinded by the Whites, Why Race Still Matters in 21st Century America. He addresses these issues in an effort to give voice to the challenges faced by most African Americans and to make eligible the shifting discourse of white supremacist ideology. He argues that all oppression of race, gender, class, sexual orientation intersect and must be confronted to upset the status quo. In this book, Blinded by the Whites, Why Race Still Matters in 21st Century America, Dr. Eichert writes that if black people of visibility and legitimate power, meaning black people of dominant economic and political power, ignore the issues of intra-racial class, repression, oppression, and ugliness within our own community, we do so at our peril. It is our honor and pleasure to have back with us Dr. David Eichardt author of Nation of Cowards and Breaking the Silence, to talk race, class, and gender at our common ground. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Our Common Ground. It's good to have you, my brother. Yes, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. <laughs> How are those wonderful children of yours? Oh, you know, keeping me busy, wearing, wearing me out, keeping me honest. 
doing their job. <laughs> well, the the last time you were with us, you had just published Breaking the Silence. Right. Uh, and so it's it, it's really good that uh, we 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 caught you just as you had published Breaking the Silence, and you were and 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 nation, we talked about Nation of Cowards, but uh, it it wasn't on a shelf yet. Right. And here we are with another book, and it is a fantastic book, my brother, and I want to thank you for it. Uh, and for oh. those of you who are listening, you must read this book. It's Blinded by the Whites, Why Race Still Matters in 21st Century America. David, yes. let's start out by talking about after um, in this um Scholastic uh, academia in the tower <laughs> the <kind laughs> of environment that you live in. How do you stay so close to the masses of black people and the struggles and the the working out the the, the, the exercise of white supremacy in our society? Wow, that's a that's a heavy question. That's a that's a a, a very good question. Um, you know, Janice, Janice, it, I've never really felt like I've ever fully been inside the academy. I, I've always felt like um, an interloper. Um, um, I always felt like a spy in the enemy's um, court. Um, I come from a working class background. I grew up in small town. North Carolina in a virulently um, racially segregated and racially toxic environment um, where, you know, um, it, was, it was not uncommon for there to be um, um, white terrorism of black communities where I'd have teachers, you know, you know at times would, would actually call you a nigger and, um, and, and deal with those kinds of you know, racially contentious issues, um, and it was it was it 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 shaped my my mindset. It shaped my my politics uh, going into um, adulthood. And when I decided to to um, um, pursue a, a PhD, quite honestly, um, it was because I stepped foot in a classroom in an African American literature classroom when I was in in college. And I had never read um, a book, a novel by a black person. In fact, in fact, Janice, quite honestly, I didn't know that black folks, based on my miseducation, I didn't even know that black people produced the kind of brilliant prose literature politics that they did. And I, one of the first books that I read was Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And I remember going around <laughs> – to my peers, you know, like somebody who had just been born and saying, have you read this? Have you, you know, like, you know, this has been on the bookshelves for all this time, and, 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 and I can't believe we're not, as a community, just really having these debates about this great, you know, novel. And I remember going to my professor and going, at the time, um, Dr. Laurier, and telling her, how do you, you know, how, do, how can I become, how can I do what you do, and it was simply because I found it so inspirational, I found it so empowering, um, that I, I just, it was almost like I found my calling. And so when I think about my trajectory in academe, 
I don't really put a lot of stock in the fact that, you know, I'm a tenured professor and I've written three books and, and this and that. I feel always like I'm the person that wasn't supposed to get invited to the party and I slipped, I slipped in the back door. And, you know, now that I'm here, they've got to deal with me. And I, I feel like my, I have a, a, um, an obligation um, now that I am in the door to, to try to tell the truth um, uh-huh. and w- whatever that looks like. And, and so, yeah, the separation between the Ivy Towers and, and, and the street for me has always been a, been a blurry one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, and it seems like you're, you're in, in, in tune with, it's like you have a ping. When, when, when you wrote um, Nations of Cowards, you pinged from Eric Holder's speech at a very, very tenuous time, racially tenuous time in this country, to knowing that we should have a discourse about it. What are you saying in this book, Blinded by the Whites? I think we lost Dr. Eichard. Uh, he just seemed to just disappear. We're going to take a, a a little break and get back to him because, well, while we're waiting for him to call back in, I'm, uh, and I know he, that he will, one of the things I want to share with you is what he writes as an introduction into the book. And, and, and it is a quote from of the character Baby Shugs in Beloved by Toni Morrison. And he writes, She did not tell them to clean up their lives or to go and sin no more. She did not tell them they were the blessed of the earth, its inheriting meek or its glory-bound pure. She told them that the only grace they could have was the grace they could imagine, that if they could not see it, they could not have it. Yeah, that's right. All right now. And, 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 and you have that on your, your blog, Nation of Cowards. You always have Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Baby and, that's is, the... is, and, and that's what you imagine, I think. Uh, in this book, that we have to find our grace, right, and we can't right. have it until we see it. But you tell us what you hope to achieve. What were you doing when you say we are blinded by the whites? <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a provocative title, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. Yes, the initial title was actually hidden in plain sight um, um, for the book. And, and one of the things I did, uh, ended up uh, uh, talking to the editor and changing was the title simply because hidden in plain sight had been used a trillion times. <laughs> and uh-huh. Blinded by the Whites was actually my uh, second choice as a title, but has since kind of grown on me as a, as a title that encompasses a lot of what I'm I'm trying to do, and and primarily what I want to demonstrate, and what what becomes a, a frustration for me at this particular moment in time is that um, 
we've made some incremental um, changes in our racial attitudes. People are obviously not as overtly um, racially biased or outwardly as racist as they once were in many ways, um, and and we've, you know, of course, um, managed to do something that many of us, myself included, never kind of imagined what happened in, 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 in certainly in my lifetime, um, and that is that there now resides an African-American man in the White House. Um, so we have certainly seen that uh, certain attitudes have have changed, and yet, um, to use the cliche, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And I think my well, my uh, anxiety based on how things have unfolded, certainly over the last six years, was that it's almost like a, a Black America got caught up in you know the euphoria of this kind of interesting historical moment and kind of let our guards down and just assumed that the symbolic representation of a black man in the White House actually was going to pay real material political dividends insofar as how our social economic circumstances stood. And we became very protectionist in the ways that we tried to push and agitate for change, and then unfortunately, because of our rather kind of passive and protectionist stance, instead of actually getting paid attention to, um, in many ways we've got we got ignored. Um, because in you know in in um, politics, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and we weren't doing a whole lot of squeaking. The Tea Party was squeaking, the GOP was squeaking. And so every time you turned around, it seemed like Barack Obama was making compromises with these people that were saying that he wasn't even born in America, that was causing, calling him everything but a, the son of God, a monkey, and, and Hitler, and all these overt and covert ways of, of, of calling him racially inferior. And um, in the meantime, you know, tart monies and, and, and were disproportionately going to these very these same conservatives and their state coffers, even as they're poo-pooing this money and disproportionately um, um, not impacting um, black communities and black businesses. And, and I think that part of what I wanted to communicate was the need for black folks in this new moment to recognize that the fight for racial equality is far from over. In fact, as we've seen the deterioration of the, the you know, the gutting of the Voters' Rights Act, um, the gutting of affirmative action, as we see um, the, the, the wealth gap continuing to expand between blacks and whites, even as we imagine that somehow we're moving towards a more economically and racially um, equal society, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of danger signs. And so part of what I wanted to express on that level is a kind of or extend a kind of wake-up call that this was not the time to rest on our laurels, to become complacent, to think that we had arrived, that we needed to, to be vigilant about, you know, um, um, fighting, continuing to, to fight for equality. But also, Janice, on a, on a more personal level, I wanted to really also touch on how 
the ways in which we've internalized certain notions of, of what we can and cannot be and so certain notions about how we move through the world and particularly certain patterns of domination that we replicate in our interactions with each other, men, black men towards black black women, black women towards um, um, black children, and black children towards each other, so on and so forth, and black men towards black men and black women towards black the black uh, women, and particularly the black elite towards the black poor, um, that we needed to really do a serious examination, introspective examination about how we have conducted our business uh, and how the things that we've internalized, these kind of white supremacist notions of, of, of what is normal, how we've internalized these and, and began to replicate these at, at the you know, nuclear family level, at the community level, and begin to really, you know, um, begin to really do some serious housekeeping and some house cleaning about uh, in, in terms of our communities. In, in, the, in the first chapter of the book, you, you do an extensive analysis of the uh, Ralph Ellison ca- character uh, in The Invisible Man. Right. Do you think, and, and, and then you had proposed at one time that this book would be titled um, In Plain Sight. Right. Do you think that, uh, that we are not seeing each other? And when we see those things which are in support of us when they are loud, you know how niggas get loud <laughs> when they think they got black power on the mind. <laughs> so, no, you didn't. Oh. Are, we scaring, are, are we scaring ourselves? And in this fear, amplifying the greater fear around the how the ideology of white supremacy is operating in the Obama era. Mm. 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 I'm telling you, I you know I know you 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 professor at FSU and when when you know why I went to FSU right Florida State University. Ah, uh, I did not know that. Oh Lord, did I, know that? I, I did have to know talk that. about that. Um, so you know a little um, something about Tallahassee. <laughs> yeah, I do know about the Tallahassee. But uh, I, 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 when I was a junior in high school, I was in advanced studies in an all-white high school in Palm Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. And FSU had this program for advanced students. And they took the top three um Juniors, this was the, the the summer before my senior year in high school, and they didn't know they were getting me because I wasn't <laughs> supposed to be there. But right. anyway, I ended up. The, yeah, I ended up for the summer. Uh, it was a two summer program, and I ended up at Florida State University in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. My my first my biggest advantage was I knew how to find get back over to FAMU from FSU. Right, right. But I was the only black, I think I was one of the first black students to attend Florida State University. But I was a high school student, so maybe that didn't count. 
Right. And the only thing that saved me in that crack of town uh, <laughs> on that summer right. was that there was two graduate teachers. These people were mm. teachers, and I, I knew them, and they were taking mm. a course or a program at FSU that summer. And, right. and I, I'm telling you, that's a tough place to be. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. It, yeah. You know, that's a real tough place to be. But yeah. it, it ended up that, you know, I, I made it through. The second summer, I kind of, like, lost my mind because I was really getting into the black power thing. And I was trying to go to – I was trying to be – go to SNCC, and it it, it, it ended up that – I was labeled a little odd and crazy, and I was really little on the odd. little on the radical side. Yeah, yeah, odd and crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I I understand what you're saying about being an outsider as a scholar, right. as a you know. But tell me about and and what I'm saying is I told you that FSU story because. There was a great deal of stress, especially mm. when I went the second year, and I really didn't want to be there because I knew what I was going to. The first right. year, I didn't know what I was going to. The second right. year, I knew what I was going to. And, 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 and you attempt to not face the fears. And I right. think in this first chapter of your book, what you're trying to do is, you know, there are some black people who think, People who talk about white supremacy, who talk about challenging it and the way in which we deal with it and who we are, you know, because, right. you know, people who teach in universities and people who work in the government, they sometimes make poor, I mean, and we're, we were all talking about, you know, the snap cuts on Friday and and what's going to happen with Medicare and Medicaid. I don't know sometimes that we know who we're talking about. Right. And you know that um, black people went around talking about the Black Panthers were all crazy niggas and and Stokely Carmichael was stone needed a psychiatrist. Right. Um, Even Dr. Francis Welsing, the psychiatrist, needed a psychiatrist. So right, in that right. first chapter, and you're talking about invisibility, I was thinking you're also talking about people who sit in the recesses simply because of the fear that they will be labeled one thing or the other, and if they don't get that, they'll get caught up in the punishment. Is mm-hmm. that where you were going? Yeah, I think, you know, Invisible Man, um, I mean, you've said a lot of stuff, and let me try and see if I can't unpack some of what I hear you saying and, and try and give a, give you a sense of, of how what you're saying is connecting with what um, um, I had in mind as I was writing um, that script. Um, if you think back, um, let's take a... Um, a contemporary um, example. Um, remember when Dave Chappelle stepped down from his show 
Uh-huh. And he turned down, like, some ungodly amount of money. I think it was, like, $52 million. And, you know, everybody was wondering, like, why did he step down on this? Like, it was, I mean, it was the hottest thing on television. Um, it broke all kind of records and DVD sales, and, and, and it made him, like, a, a superstar. And, um, and Dave Chappelle was trying to explain, you know, I'll never forget when he went on Oprah. He was trying to articulate how it was that he had started out with a, a comedy show that he wanted to be unapologetically critical um, and unapologetically um, um, an interrogation of, of certain, you know, race um, um, patterns of racial inequality in America and in fact had um, been turned down for a number of pilots that he had uh, floated in Hollywood because they wanted to turn his ideas um, of having a you know an all-black cast into a primarily white cast with like the token Negroes in it and um, you know he he didn't want to compromise his art and he you know joked even on the first episode that that might be the only episode that they that aired and that when he um, when he made a little money from his career, he went um, and bought a farm and paid for it and called it the FU Hollywood Farm um, and, you know, joked that if his show failed, then um, it would fail honestly and he would still have a home, right? So he could basically do his comedy fearlessly and not worry about failing. And, of course, it turned into a hit. And And what he experienced, though, I think, was he realized how when his show became mainstream, right, when white folks started watching it and started, you know, you know, retelling the jokes, that the very thing that he had set out to critique, which is, which is the, you know, continuing existence of, of white supremacy um, in, uh, in America, um, and the very thing that he had set out in terms of trying to depathologize black humanity, Right, like with the you know with the Rick James and various other kinds of uh, characters that he brought on, um, um, which were profoundly amusing, but were also um, you know designed at once to humanize uh, these folks. He, he he found that his art was being co-opted, that in fact, you know the jokes were being you know turned around and used to actually make the argument about black folks being pathological and, and, and so on and so forth, and it it messed with him so much that he became very paranoid and walked away from the show. And what I find, you know, intriguing about that, in particular I'm thinking about this, this interview that he did with Oprah, is that even when he was having this conversation with Oprah, he couldn't find the words to articulate that particular phenomenon. And I don't think that's just because Dave Chappelle is a crazy person or, you know, you know, that he was, you know, on some kind of drugs or, you know, the stress got to him or all that. I think it's that particular kind of pressure is by design. Our system is set up to give you a lot of monetary incentives to basically, you know, toll the status quo line, whether it's a big raise or a big grant or celebrity or whatever – 
um, with the tacit understanding that you, when, when the microphone is in front of your face and somebody says, is there racism in America, you go, oh, no, no, I've worked really hard and, you know, people have treated me well and I think if everybody else works as hard as I work, then by God they could have the American dream um, as well. And so when you begin to do the kinds of things that you're doing, speaking truth to power and, and, and being very kind of bold and forthright about talking about these existing um, dynamics of racial inequality, um, when, you, when you write about it, when you talk about it, um, because our society is designed to shut that down or to see that or to write that script as radical or as fanatical or as somehow outside of the mainstream, then those of us that do that kind of work often are second-guessing ourselves because the dominant society, even a lot of, of, of folks that look just like us, are telling us to tap it down, are telling us that, you know, that language is too strong, that, um, that you know, things are getting better. And I think the, the, the challenge, right, in writing and addressing these kinds of issues is getting, moving beyond this perception that somehow by talking about these things, by trying to articulate these things, that you are in fact crazy, and it is the pressure of that, the pressure of that silencing, the pressure of that, you know, notion that we're, you know, that things are getting better that shuts down people like, you know, like a Dave Chappelle, that shuts down somebody like Invisible Man in that, that text. And, and that can, you know, lead to a lot of fatigue in people like you. I mean, you open your show talking about, you know, scratching your head about how we can fund all of these, um, you know, all of these trivial you know, shows, these reality shows and things and, and spend all our money on these trivial, you know, um, um, material objects. And yet when it comes to a show that is trying to say something positive about, you know, the state of black America, we just seem not to care or we seem just not to put it as, as a priority. And that's, so, that, so on one level, that's really what I'm trying to drive at is to trying to open up that discussion about the, the pressures that exist to, to shut that conversation down, to make it very difficult for us to even feel confident that the things that we experience, that the things that we see, we, we actually see, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting that toward the end of the book, which is very different from what most um, people from the academy bring to us, is that you propose some 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 very simple answers to to this, and that is that we have got to see each other. That's how yes. I, I translated yes. it. Yes. That yes. we can't, you know, we have got to uh, find a way to be inclusive right. along the lines of class. Right. And that's something yes. interclassism, uh, colorism, the homophobia, and right. I, I do want to let people to, to, to declare that we become something in our lives for for a reason, and right. and you always declare that you are uh, an, an anti-homophobic black feminist, mm. uh, identified black man. Mm-hmm. I always identify as a race woman. All right, and, now. 
I am the last of the lot, I think. Hey, <laughs> digging it out. But, Keep digging it out. But, you know, the thing is that we have to identify ourselves by principle. Right. We can't say, we can't come to our common ground and talk about all the problems of the poor people. And then right. we pass by the poor people on the street and we right. are disgusted. Right. Uh, we oh, can't yeah, say that we love and struggle toward freedom, yet at the same time we want to oppress people who make choices that may not be ours. Right. We got to get right. that straight. That shit we, got we, to we, stop. We do, Janet. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'm working on this book project with um, Brittany Cooper. Um, out of uh, Rutgers. Oh, Brittany Cooper just blew me out of the water last who, week. Who is a who is a you know a up up and coming rising star and who is an intellectual um, a boss um, and of course Mark Anthony Neal, dear dear friend who's been on the front lines um, for a long time who has never forgotten from whence he's come is always representing um, and has. You know, you know, empowered uh, people like myself and just a countless number of other folks by just being so generous with his time, his energies, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, but I believe that we're we're, we're working on a, on a project now about um, 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 Trayvon Martin and black respectability. And um, to your point, one of the things that we're trying to articulate in this project um, is the ways in which um, we, and we're talking about black folks here, have so internalized this notion of racial common sense, right, that, that if we play by the rules, right, we play by the rules of the status quo, which says, you know, if you're, you know, walking along at night and, and some white man, some George Zimmerman-type character accosts you as if you're a criminal, instead of responding angrily or being upset, you know, you need to be very kind of polite and not, mm-hmm. you know, try and raise a fuss and mm-hmm. not try mm-hmm. to have any kind of confrontation. And, you know, we teach our, you know, our children to be passive. We teach, you know, our boys to you know, respect a law that does not respect them. Um, And, you know, a lot of times we're shucking and jiving ourselves in the presence of white power. And then we wonder why it is that our children look at us as if we're crazy. We wonder why our children are walking around literally showing their behinds to the world and throwing up their middle fingers. Uh, And we, you know, and and we act as if, there's something wrong with them, right, rather than recognize that we have failed them uh-huh. to a large degree because we haven't fought for them, right? Um, what was Trayvon Martin to do? I mean, people were always, you know, everybody's like, well, if he would have did this and he would have still been alive, da, da, da. Trayvon Martin had the audacity to recognize his humanity and stand up for himself and for that. He was murdered. You know, David, it's really interesting that you're doing this project because uh, I think that um, um, I finally broke down and went to see 12 Years a Slave. Mm 
um, on one of these days this week. I took the day off from work. I knew that uh, I wanted to go alone. I went alone. Right. I didn't want anybody to sit. It's like when I go to church. I don't want anybody to sit near me. Don't distract right. me from what I'm doing. You go do what right. you're doing. Right. Um, and I was, and I have, re- I have been reading, I got my first book of slave narratives when I think I was in junior high, seventh grade or something like that. Right. And so I've been studying the institution of shadow slavery for a very long time. But and I thought I was prepared, but I was I was shaken to the core. Whereas for 15 minutes I couldn't move out of the seat. I wanted every damn body to get the hell out of the theater so I could flee. Wow! But wow! That, I haven't profound. seen it yet, so I'm so you have to. Yeah, you can't. That's, that's <laughs> how profound it was for me. That's that's what I've heard. I mean, I've I've heard that from. I mean, yeah. I mean, the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Um, 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 I've heard, I mean, that has resonated time and again. And one of the things that shook me more than anything was that the lessons that were portrayed that slaves had learned in order to survive. Mm. And they're the same kind of lessons you're talking about for this project. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of lessons that we're trying to teach our children to keep them safe and, and to survive uh, the racial terrorism that exists in their lives. Mm. That's right. So here we are repeating the lessons of right. slavery. We yeah. have charter schools who are using military and prison models for discipline and we're thinking that that's good and we're te- and telling our and telling our beautiful uh young Children. girls that the hair that grows naturally out of their heads is somehow ugly mm-hmm. right um well there's that, a there's a war trying to combat that but i i think this project that you're doing is just wonderful because we are beating ourselves into the dust. Right. We are we we continually which is why this book is just so important because it helps us see ourselves. Right. Right. Well I appreciate that. I mean I I always feel like when I finish a project that, you know, you, you don't you never know how it's gonna get received. You never know if the message that you're trying to communicate um gets communicated. Um <laughs> Um, and it's you know, and it's something you put down. So you you know you you hope that it it makes an impact, and it's a very humbling experience, you know, uh-huh. to this day that you know that I've sat down and I put my thoughts on paper. A somebody has actually thought it was good enough to publish, and B that brilliant people like yourself are sitting around and 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 reading what I've I've written and actually thinking through it and engaging it. I mean that that to me is is still. Um, mind-boggling, um, but I but I really truly um, believe. Hello. Okay, we keep getting disconnected. David, are you still there? It looks like you're still there. Well, I just want everyone to know that it was just. 
uh, exhilarating to be able to read um, I'm hoping his phone didn't die I exhilarating to to over the last day and a half uh, to get through this book, and it is a must-read. I have all of his books in my library, Blinded by the Whites, um, A Nation of Cowards, and um, Breaking the Silence. Um, you know, it, 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 we have to put our pain in some clarity. We can't always say, oh, we're in pain and the white, uh, the system of white supremacy is killing us. We have to see how and we have to know who. We're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk more with Dr. David Icard, who is a professor of African American literature at Florida State University. He's currently teaching at the University of Miami in Florida. His research interests include black gender studies, cultural criticism, hip-hop culture, and post-racial politics. And this book, uh, uh, Blinded by the Whites, um, addresses uh, three uh, concerns from various perspectives. Chief among them is black feminism, and I want to talk to him more about how we are going to get past our phobias in America. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Creepy ass cracker. So it was racial. Trayvon Martin put race in this. You don't think that's a racial comment? No. Transforming truth to the right, and um, the the right wing extremists have now become mainstream, and in many ways provides a litmus test for what some think are cultural and moral integrity in the country at this time. Uh, the whole country has drifted to the right. Uh, if you don't believe it, um, anybody who actually thinks or calls. Uh, President Barack Obama, uh, a liberal, is insane. Barack Obama is a moderate, uh, a center-right, uh, right-wing Democrat. Uh, when you look at his... Approach. The most powerful force in the world. The soul of fire. Soul of Fire, Spirit
This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show, only at TruthWorks Network. Fridays, 10 p.m. Close your eyes for a second. What do you see? Am I black? White? Yellow? Red? Skin is just skin. No matter matter the color. Red, yellow, black, or white. We're all the the same color. When we turn off the light. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Join India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Fridays and Saturdays. 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw and right now, it's Friday and Saturday. India Declare at the I Declare brunch. Real, raw, and right now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning, 11 a.m. The I Declare show with India Declare. On Blog Talk Radio. India Declare. Real. Raw and right now. Well, well. Our common ground, the sanctuary of genius in black America. Here at our common ground, we record our history. Where we make the chronicles, we create and record the history of the best, brightest, brilliant black minds ideas and scholarship, inventions, innovations, and creation of black America in America. Our Common Ground, broadcasting brave, bold, and black. For more than 28 years now, giving voice to the black truth and the black masses. Empowering black America to achieve well, well. This is our common ground. Well, well. Speaking truth to power as ourselves. Each Saturday, well, and well. Again, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Well, well. Each Saturday night, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Grant, well, and well. I'll be listening for you. Well, well. going on with my line I'm and you know I got into what I was saying so much that I did probably the five minutes I'm talking to myself didn't realize I was had been cut off <laughs> had been cut off well, well yeah. we went to break um and we needed to do that 
but what we were talking what we we're talking about was this whole notion of how we see each other in the project that you're doing with Brittany Cooper and um Mark Dr. Mark Anthony Neal both who are our common ground voices I was I, I was just really upset about what happened to her at some conference in New York in Brooklyn last last week. I was yeah. um, sad myself actually. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it was, it was um, really it, yeah, it was really hard to even it, it was really hard to even get your your mind around that right in this day and age that somebody would show out. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in that in 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 such a public form, and somebody who you would imagine would know better, um, would show out in such a kind of violent, aggressive way. I, that, but one that, of the things that, that, that underscores in your book is our willingness to make. You know, as James Baldwin asked the question, "What's the price of the ticket?" Right, um, right. You know, because I just would not have been able to sit there in a conference while a brother attacked a right. sister right. in 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 such a violent way where it was actually physically threatening. And for those right. of you who are listening, we're talking about our sister Brittany Cooper who was presenting on the issues of of womanness and black feminism uh in um in our society, and she was attacked by a brother who was a socialist, blah, 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 and a jackass, all in the same <laughs> breath. Uh, and, and, and see, one of the things that we haven't passed along, and in my house we talk about this a lot, our failure in my generation, mm-hmm. because my daughter wouldn't have had it. Right. I mean, right. Brittany sat there and she tried to be professional and she tried not to illuminate or amplify to, to try to calm this brother down. And it was clear right. to me from her description that he wasn't going to get calmed down. Right. So he would have had to get slapped. Right, right, right. It slapped sounds down like this in a way. Was... Not that I advocate yeah. violence. You all know I don't advocate violence. But this right. brother would have had to have been dealt with. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it, it, yeah, it's it's. Um, let's let's talk about that for a minute, David. You've you've dealt with that in your book, breaking the silence. You've dealt with it in a lot of your writings on your blog. What what? Why can't we get it straight, us freedom struggling people, around the issue of balance? You know, it's like, mm. uh, and, and I mentioned to you that one of the things that I wanted to talk about is this friction that seems to be going on uh, between um, black men and black feminist discourse mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, about um, the whole notion of um, how we have race roles and we have gender roles and somehow everybody's trying to hold each other to the role. Right, 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 right. You know, and you right. know my response to that. Right. Demarginalizing the intersection is what um uh, uh, how it has been described. 
Talk right, to us about right. your, your views about how we can dismantle. I mean, it is clear. I mean, I had a brother I had to cuss out on the air a couple of weeks ago because he thought that uh, he was expressing the notion that um, a, a woman is power, empowerment, black mm-hmm. feminism is a way of uh, castrating male potency. Yeah, I can see why. <laughs> I can see why that would be a problem. Um, I mean, I said all kinds of nasty words on this air, and I apologize <laughs> to my audience once again. <laughs> but it, it, it's almost like when black men insist on having a ceiling for black women, they don't recognize in many ways that reconstructs and re-fortifies the ceiling under which they live. Right, right. And I think that's... Um... I mean, I think that's a profound point. And I think a lot of times, well, I mean, this is, you know, this is this becomes the this becomes the challenge, right, for for black folks in terms of how we relate to one another, right? I mean, this is this is what this is what Toni Morrison's Beloved is about, right? I mean, remember that very mm-hmm. you know powerful moment when you know Paul D finds out that. You know the woman that he he loves, the woman that helps you know keep him together, um, has you know committed this infanticide and, and killed her child, and um, and he says to you know he says to Seth he says uh, you know you have two legs not four right like you you know mm-hmm. only an animal would do something like do this, this. And, it, and it really rips her up right and really what Paul D who has been raped himself, really what Paul D. is trying to articulate or really what Paul D. is putting on this, on Sessa is really his own insecurities about his masculinity. He's just placing that onto her, mm-hmm. right? And so I think what, what often happens is in this environment in which part of what we're doing is we're living through these scripts of, of kind of white expectations of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And instead of being able to have enough critical distance to, to be able to come up with new scripts that work for us, we end up kind of working through these, you know, very unproductive scripts to try and deal with each other. And it ends up in a bad, we end up in a, often in a very, very bad place when we, we, we do that. And then, you know, black men feel like, you know, that the script for being a man is a, is a script of white masculinity. Well, the problem, of course, with trying to operate through this white male script of what it means to be a man is that that script of white masculinity is premised on dominating black people and dominating women. Right, and even dominating poor white people, right? Um, and um, so when you try to occupy that, when you try to replicate that, um, then you you end up like what this brother did, thinking that if you want to support him as a man, that requires you being silent, that requires you accommodating his masculinity, pumping up his ego, 
and not challenging him to be, you know, a different kind of man. And I think therein lies, you know, some of the problems. And, and let's be clear, you know, the, you know, oftentimes the sisters too have expectations, right? Their 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 expectations about, you know, men should be breadwinners, they should do these kind of things, and so everybody is operating from a similar kind of script. So it's very difficult, oftentimes I think for again, for us to see each other and to see ourselves and that it, it complicates the way in which we interact with each other and complicates what we think, you know, healthy gender roles are. Well, you know, we also offer forgiveness for ignorance. Right. Um, and, and, and for me that's a, a, a real problem. You describe in the in this book um how you discovered your own black feminist identification in dealing with your father when you were a student yeah. right right right, I think, right. I, I, I think that we have to find a way for every black man to be pushed back to a point where they they have to examine and every black woman has to examine who I am, not who right. they say I am. Right. Right. And That's it is hard. another example of how we allow white supremacist ideology to right. enter into our lane. Oh absolutely. I mean I, I mean and, and absolutely. I, you know, and I, I say that because white women suffer from white what white men have told them who they are. Right. And, and you know what, right. David? That's their problem. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, I, and 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 then in 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 concert with that. Mm-hmm. We still have the problem of black men defining what is beauty right. from the same place. No question. I'm oh, and black play... women internalize. I mean, and black women internalize it, right? They internalize yeah. it, and and um, you know, they they want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved, and black women want. I mean, I mean, the stats don't lie. Black women love black men. They want to be with black men, and um, and the challenge, of course, is that oftentimes, um, I mean, we live in very unhealthy, a very unhealthy environment that we've been living in this environment for so long, Janice, that we sometimes we forget that it's not healthy. I mean, I liken it to, you know, working at a bar and you're not a smoker. But you you work in a an environment in which people are smoking around you, and you end up with lung cancer. And you and you go to the doctor, and it's like, look, I haven't I haven't smoked one cigarette in my life. How is it that I have lung cancer? Mm-hmm. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he asks you like, well, where where have you worked? And you like work at this bar? And is there smoking there? It's like, yes. Well, when if you were in an environment in which people were smoking, you might as well have been smoking, you know, two or three packs a day because you were in an environment where the air was toxic and you were breathing it in even involuntarily, right? And as a result, you have developed, right, a disease from 
just being in that environment. And I think that is, in a lot of ways, what has, has happened to us. And so we don't know how to talk constructively about mental health, about depression. We don't know how to talk about, you know, our feelings of insecurity, and particularly men. Um, you know, black women have developed a kind of strong black women, woman kind of uh, mythology that, you know, was, was used to kind of, you know, insulate themselves against, you know, all kinds of assaults on the person both externally and internally, and as a result um, have real challenges asking for help or seeing, you know, therapy as a kind of a viable option. Um, You know, I mean, all of these kinds of things, and I think so when we begin to try and unpack these things and say, well, what what does a healthy relationship mean? I mean, part of what we have to do is to, and this is why my work always always points outward, right, always says or always tries to call attention to the fact that first and foremost we should realize that the models that we think are so healthy and so status quo, right, the the, the things that we aspire to be, right, Mm -hmm. these white models of success are inherently premised on a pathological notion of humanity, right? And so – we, we are often the ones who are cast as being pathological, but we are dealing with a pathological, we're dealing with a pathological dominant ideology, a pathological notion of what it means to be normal. And it ain't a new pathology. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. the very basis of, of what our country has been built on. And we've been, we, we reached a point where we can't even articulate that. We can't even... The reason why I use Invisible Man, there was a moment in Invisible Man where Invisible Man, he's trying to do everything everybody told him to do. He's gotten this scholarship that's been given to him by these powerful white men of his community, and he's asked to give this speech in front of these these men, and he's he's dressed and he's prepared to do this, and he's dressed in his finest. And instead of being able to deliver his speech, they throw him in with with these other black boys that they 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 brought there, and they they end up in this battle royale, right? He ends up being blindfolded, and he ends up in a ring being beat to the pulp, right, by these other black men for entertainment, for sport. And then they parade a, you know, a, a half naked white woman in front of 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 these black boys again for sport to watch them, you know hide their erections and these kind of things as a way to kind of sh- to, to, to show who really has power, who really has control, not just over them, but also over white women's bodies and who has access to that, right? And they're watching this as spectacle, right? And they're watching these black boys, and they're training them to be afraid. They're training them to fear. They're training them to dance. They're training them to, to run around and chase these little kibbles and bits that they throw at their feet, and then, then and only then, after all this performance, then Invisible Man is, is given the opportunity to give his graduation speech. So he gives his graduation speech. His mouth is filling with blood. He's sweating, right? And nobody seems to be paying attention to his speech until instead of saying personal responsibility, he says, Right, he he says um, racial responsibility, or he says equality. I forget exactly the language that he uses, but he uses a language that that suggests that somehow the problem is racial inequality. 
right? And that's, I think that's what he said. I think he says, in in his original speech, he says racial responsibility, and then he says racial equality. And the the white men in the room who aren't paying attention to his speech, when he says racial equality, they stop. And it gets real serious. And they say, say that again, boy. Repeat that. And then he says racial responsibility. And they say, are you sure you didn't say equality? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's an important point because, what has happened at that moment is indicative of what has happened now, is that they have hijacked, right? Dominant society has hijacked the very language that we use to articulate our positions of inferiority and subordinate status so that when you say that you're a race woman or you say you're, you're, you, know, you're, you want to empower black people, blah, 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 within the context of that, you seem radical. You seem fanatical, like you know, why would she do that, right? What is that? You know, you don't like white people, right? And so when you're, when you're actually saying or articulate something that it's about health, right, it's about moving to a space of health, moving to a space of power, because of the ways in which that discourse, that dominant power, has hijacked the very language that you use to articulate what that dominant system has done to you to turn you into the crazy person. See, that's the tricky magic of trying to navigate uh-huh. all of this uh-huh. stuff. Uh-huh. And when we see, as you, as you call them, magical Negroes running around, we don't <laughs> understand what happened. Right. Let me play this clip for you, um, because one of the things that you argue in this book is that we have to stop turning away from looking at and examining our pathologies. Right. They're not right. our pathologies, but the pathologies that have been created by this system. Right. This is a scene from the movie Precious. And he touched my baby, and I asked him, I said, Carl, what are you doing? And he told me to shut, to shut my fat ass up, and it was good for her. And what did you do then? I shut my fat ass up. And I don't want you to sit there and judge me this way. You shut up and you let him abuse your daughter. I did not want him to abuse my daughter. I did not but want him to hurt her. Him I did not want her. him to do nothing to her. I wanted him to make love to me. That was my man. That was my fucking man. That was my man. And he wanted my daughter. And that's why I hated her. Because my man, who was supposed to be loving me, who was supposed to be making love to me, was fucking my baby, and she made him leave. She made him go away. So whose fault was it then? this bitch's fault because she let my man have her, and she didn't say nothing. She didn't scream. She didn't do nothing. So those things that she told you I did to her, who, who, who else was going to love me? Hmm? Since you got your degree, and you know every fucking thing, who was going to love me? Who, who was going to make me feel good? Who was going to touch me and make me feel good late at night? And she made him go away. So when you sit there and you write them fucking notes on your pad about who you think I am and why I did it and all of that, because I didn't have nobody.
And now back to Our Common Ground. David, that is probably one of the most riveting uh, cinematic uh, scenes that we have seen in our lifetime. And many Mm. people opposed us seeing it. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, even listening to it, um, I just, I had forgotten how intense that was, that moment was. I mean, that's a, that's an incredibly intense moment. Um, and, you know, what it immediately made me think of, because, you know, I talk about um, some sexual abuse that has happened in, in my family and, and particularly the ways in which there was a kind of a communal collective silencing around that and the ways in which, you know, both the church played a role and, and, and you know, my mother played a role and my sisters and and everybody. And, and at one point in time, because of my kind of desire to be, you know, in the family and the ways in which I kind of understood how to think about that, I played a role um, in it as well until I knew better and how to kind of think, think that um, those kind of abuses um, um, through. But I think again, it becomes very difficult for us to have these kinds of conversations part and parcel because we don't, the the shaming uh, aspect of this, both in terms of our community, but also a shaming aspect in terms of what that's going to look like to the dominant community. What is that going to say about us? Right? What is that going to say about our nuclear family? What is that going to say about our community? And so what has happened is often instead of addressing these things, instead of confronting these things, we tend to cover them up. We tend to make excuses um, for them. We tend to, I mean, Mark Anthony Neal talked about, um, you know, this kind of syndrome of, of, of strong black men, right, this notion that if you – if you accommodate certain kinds of expectations of, you know, taking care of your family and being a respectable man that white people look up to, then you're a strong black man. And what that means is that ultimately you can all but get away with murder in, in black communities and black communities will rally around you, right? Um, you know, I, I think he cites, um, you know, people like um, Mike Tyson. We've seen it happen with Kobe Bryant and, and several other men, right, who have done these things, and yet, you know, the community wants to protect them and, and, and insulate them um, uh, in these ways. And I think it was hard to kind of hear that. It was hard to watch that because that's a kind of airing dirty laundry that we have been policed out of doing, that we have – I know certainly I was raised that to do that is the kind of ultimate betrayal of your family. Yeah, and what those yeah. kind of yeah, and what those kind of silences do is actually allow sexual predators and so forth to destroy our communities and with our tacit blessing. Mhm, mhm. You know, one of the things that, that the word that you say shame and I, I do want to say it for you out of all of the outstanding examinations and analysis that you do in the book, for me as the reader Looking at this particular, because I had to go back and go on YouTube and kind of uh, remember and try to recall 
who and and why people were so opposed to the movie. Also, right. the the movie, as Brother Brock in our chat room has pointed out, the color purple. Uh, also, right. the movie about the um, the black le- lesbian teenager. Um, um, also, the movie about other things that go on in our community that we need to see clearly. And you have just right. pointed out just the core of what this book means for me, and that is that somehow we are operating in a way that what white people say about us and how they defined us is just still so dominant in our mm-hmm. personalities, our character, and our principles. Yes. You know, I yes. was talking about the book with, um, I, I'll have to drop a name, Dr. Um, Alan Counter, who's the, um, chair, uh, the president of the Harvard Foundation, just this afternoon. And, I mean, he didn't call to ask about the book, but I told him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I recall for him, uh, the day how shame uh, is is has really become the silent killer. I mean, if if um, um, if HIV at one time was called the silent killer in our community, and then there was cancer is called the silent commun- uh, killer. Last month, I was saying that us not talking about intimate partner violence as a silent killer of our children, but I want to talk about another silent killer, and that silent killer is shame. And the shame comes from us trying to constantly prove that we are just as good, that we are not what they say we are. We are not inferior. And and, And when we talk about liberation... I think that that is one of the things that we have to liberate ourselves from. And when we do that, we can see Precious's life in that movie, or the other lady in the other movie. We can see their lives in a whole different light that relates to us. Because we have to stop talking about poor people as though it's a marble sitting over there in that planter. Right. 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 As if, you know, you know, as if they're not a part of our family, as if they're not, exactly. you know, if, as if they don't love their children, if they don't want education for their children, if that somehow, you know, I was talking to my students the other day um, about how, you know, we, we go into these, these eateries, these fast food places, and we, we get our food and we like our cheap hamburgers and our cheap fries, and, you know, we can eat the meal for, you know, under 10 bucks and, and what have you. And we look at these corporations like McDonald's and Walmart who don't pay a living wage uh, to people who are disproportionately black and brown. Um, rely on the, the, the government to actually, you know, fill in the gap, even as these people are working 45, 50 hours a week. And then we have the audacity to call these people lazy. We have the audacity to call these people parasites when, in fact, the true parasites 
are these multi-billion, you know, um, international companies that are actually bilking the taxpayers for paying for, you know, the gap between what they pay these, um, their employers and what it actually costs for people to live, mm-hmm. right? And then call these people lazy, call these people parasitical, demonize these people, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, to, to your point, we've got to, and it particularly becomes important when black folks get to a, a, a place of social visibility where, you know, they, they acquire some level of prominence or, or even what I would call honorary whiteness. And then, again, somebody puts the microphone in front of your mouth. I mean, you think about, you know, Jay-Z and this Barney thing, right? And Jay-Z has spent his whole entire career talking about how he's been racially profiled and, you know, how people are following around the store and, and, and checking him out and doing all this kind of stuff. And suddenly now, you know, he's got a multi-million-dollar campaign with Barney's and da 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 And suddenly now he sounds like a white corporate po- politician. Like, oh, we've got to wait for all the facts to come out and, you know, why are you guys trying to demonize me because I've got this thing at Barney's and da 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 And we're looking at, you know, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say, you know, I, you know, I listen to Jay-Z, I, you know, you know I've, I've helped him to become the multimillionaire he has in, in the sense that I've, I've spent a lot of money on his music. Um, and to hear, you know, this kind of rhetoric of, you know, let's let's just kind of, you know, hold our, our judgments. And Dr. Lee, Jay-Z, Jay-Z understands how that works, mm-hmm. right? Jay-Z knows that this kind of stuff goes on, and yet now get in a position of authority and power, and he sounds like authority and power, right? Mm-hmm. And so it becomes very important when we get to positions of authority and power that we actually use our positions to empower those people who can't speak up for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Not to, you know, not to just, you know, tell them, well, look, well, everybody, all these other black folks, they need to do what I did. You know, I worked hard. Like that person who's, you know, busting their butt in Walmart for 50 hours a week or, you know, at McDonald's for 50 hours a week who still, after working for 10 years, 12 years, making $8 an hour with no health insurance, Right and mm-hmm. no 401k, no benefits, no retirement um, is treated like a throwaway person, you know. And that we cannot we cannot let that happen in silence, right? Because that's on us. You know, and and one of the things that, in addition to the Barney's issue, is that you have all these people, Kanye West, you know, and and I certainly can't have a discussion with you without talking about hip-hop and the hip-hop culture and the hip-hop people and you know I, I, I do have to I do I do have to uh, confess I looked for some hip-hop music this afternoon to have on this show tonight and I couldn't find any that I understood <laughs> I, I have to call Mark Anthony Neal and say I have failed the course <laughs> I have totally failed the course I'm still on Nas but Right. Uh, they're not at the forefront of issues that directly affect them, like Frisk and Search. Right, right, right. You know, they said a couple of words about Trayvon Martin, but they didn't say anything about 
uh, a campaign about stand your ground. And it's not just the hip-hop artists and the hip-hop moguls, which I call Jay-Z and Kanye moguls now. And, oh, and that's, that's, that's silly, what they are. Right. That silly man, Russell Simmons, he's just a silly man. <laughs> um, peace of love. Peace of love. I'm going to try to keep it at peace and love, but damn. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all give a, they give a, a, a sister a hard time trying to be in the peace and love. <laughs> and it, it, even my daughter says, Mom, you just don't respect any of those people. Hell no. Um, oh, bring me something. <laughs> right. But anyway. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. <laughs> they, 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 here we have issues that directly affect uh, many of our celebrities. Um, many of of uh, our athletes and and these hip hop people and, and and as you as you point out, they may be, be singing a little bit about some of these issues, but they're not doing anything about it. And one of the reasons why white supremacy and rearing its ugly head uh, in a very aggressive and terroristic way in our society today is that white people who believe that they must hang on to their superiority in this society, they're putting their money where their mouth is. Oh, they're not playing around. It's not a game. It's not no, a game. it's no longer a game. They no, know that they are at risk, and they are buying their way out of the risk. Yeah, but, it's, you know, it's, it's not. I'm and 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 David, let me ask you, what's up with your boy Kanye? What? what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you Explain know, it to you know, me. Kanye, I, I, you know, I, 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 I looked, I, I looked um, to see if it was in blinded by the white. Yeah, <laughs> but I, even, you know what? I, I, uh, you know, Kanye is a is a you know he's a he's a uh, he's a course in contradictions. Um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, you know, what I would say about Kanye, and what I would say about a lot of a lot of these these brothers. I mean, on, on the one hand, you want to give them an opportunity to grow. You 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 would hope that in you know the experiences that they had, that they have a capacity for growth, and that we can see some. I mean, if you go to um, Kanye's music, I mean, in fact, I mean, let's let's not forget that in the midst of um, the 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 tension of Hurricane Katrina, when all that stuff was going on, it was actually Kanye West who came on television and actually put his career in jeopardy by going off script. And saying during that that uh, live fundraiser that George Bush does not like white people, um, and lest we underestimate the kind of impact that that statement had, uh, when George Bush wrote his you know autobiography, the thing that he pointed out that was the most hurtful, right of his in two terms as president. Right, the thing, the one thing that he pointed out was actually Kanye West's statement, right, that he didn't like black people. That's what he put in his autobiography. Um, so I would say, 
you know, when it comes to Kanye and you listen to his music, that the brother actually has a political consciousness. There is there is potential there. I mean, he has said some things that are quite quite profound. Um, you know, actually, I think he was he was seems to be be growing um, less intelligent by the day. But certainly, um, if you look at his you know his, at his music, particularly the music that he was producing um, when he first um, hit the uh, hit the scene, um, he was actually trying to say something, right, about capitalism. He was trying to say something about, you know, um, a white supremacy, say something about the kind of um, strong arm control that white corporations had over black productivity. Because let's be clear, um, hip-hop is no longer in the domain of free expression, which is to say these artists are not, in control of their music, right? The music that is being produced in this commercial machine is already, you know, it's already put into a, a, a machine, right? There's certain kinds of, there's certain kinds of, you could be an artist and you want to say something about Katrina. You want to say something about the prison industrial complex. You want to say, something about, you know, um, the Great Recession, the ways in which kind of black um, um, folks have been um, ignored, so on and so forth. There is no space. There will be no space in, the, in, a, in a, a contract with a corporation for you to be that kind of political rapper. A, they don't think it sells well, and B, their clientele is not black folks. Their main clientele are white folks between the ages of 19 and 35. You know, right, or, or at this point, probably more like you know, twelve and thirty-five. Um, so we can't, you know, we can't talk about hip hop as if hip hop is not part of the mechanization of white capitalism, right? Because it is, it absolutely is, right? The the the, the commercials, the the videos, that that's the corporate. Entity and there's a there's a investment in notions of black death and black pathology that comes out of that that is part of what gets perpetuated right and that those I mean if you look at Byron Hurts beyond beats and rhymes I mean he sits right outside of BMG right um, as you know uh, hordes of you know potential um, rappers are outside rehearsing, you know, because there's an open call for for new musicians and they're all so they're all out in the you know, waiting in, in the in the street waiting to get in and get their shot, right? The shot at maybe landing a record deal. And so they're all talking about gunplay and, and sexual dominance and all of this kind of stuff and Byron intervenes at some point and says, you know, you know, you brothers are not some of you are not from the streets. Most of you are not gangbangers. Why are all the why is all the music about you know violence and sexual domination and and homophobic? Why are we doing this kind of stuff? And one brother was like, "Look, we got plenty of things that we could say about these other kinds of things." And one brother even breaks off this really really smart you know um, spits about you know um, poverty and urban spaces and police brutality. 
But it's like, but I can't go up in there and tell that. If I go up there and start talking about that, it's done. It's a, it's a wrap. I understand that what they're selling or what they're buying is black death, hypersexuality, primitivism, so on and so forth. And so they, they accommodate that because for them, for many of them, that is the only avenue um, for them to be able to articulate their art to be able to be successful. I mean, that's, and that's real. But it goes back to the core question of your book. What price the ticket? Exactly. Right. And, right, you exactly. Know, you, exactly. You, I, I, I do have to extend even to um, my uh, great opposition to what is happening in hip-hop music and hip-hop culture and what it robs our children of. Mm-hmm. I, I do very much understand that what has the, the revolution of young black men and women in hip-hop comes as a result of two things, the failure of our education system and the failure of our economy. I, 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 I do fall back on that when I say I understand what you're saying. But at, mm-hmm. the, at, at the same time, I still have to pose a question, and James Baldwin is my favorite philosopher, and ask the question, what sacrifices do we have to make? Now, um, I want to kind of, we've only got a few more minutes, and, and, and you end your book with something that I think is so profound that I want to read and get your response. You say, what are struggles from helping to abolish slavery to fighting for civil rights have taught us is that the might, courage, brilliance, and determination of a few can be transformative in revolutionary ways. We have learned from our failures on this score that nothing can kill a movement quicker than fear, complacency, and low expectations. Our destiny continues to be, well, I'll I'll read it verbatim. Our destiny remains in our hands. If we want to alter it for the better, then political inaction and blind accommodationism are not viable options. You end the book by saying, as one of my mentors uh, was fond of saying, this ain't rocket science. The (laughs) answers are hidden. In plain sight. In plain Brother, sight. Brother, you landed the plane on that one. <laughs> oh, I mean, and we're talking wow. about Battlestar Galactica kind of entry. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that you, it is clear from what you write here that if we take the time to see, we can have sight. This is a this is third eye kind of stuff. Mhm, mhm, mhm. And oh, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, 
I keep saying you're at FSU, but I know that you're a professor at University of Miami now, and you're all down there in the sand and everything. But how are your students <laughs> responding to this? Um, you know, I think um, my students really, I think the, the students uh, get it, and they are empowered by it. They're also shook. Um, because they have black and white, brown alike, have been so miseducated that when you just give them a little bit of education, when you just because because these stu- these students are not they're not dumb, right? They they're what I call super um, um, super. Um, learners of of a certain kind of received knowledge. They have mastered how to regurgitate information that they have been given, right? And so they haven't been taught to be critical. They've been taught to absorb and repeat, right? And so even in this kind of process of being taught to absorb and repeat, they they have kind of harbor a sneaky suspicion that there's a there's a part of this that um, there's a part of the story there's a part of the narrative that has been left out and so by the time they get to my class you know and I you know begin to engage them in the ways that I do then for a lot of them it's a eureka moment it's not that I'm like introducing something to them that fundamentally changes how they think. What it is is that I introduce something to them that helps them put together pieces of a puzzle that they were already putting together. Um, And uh, that's what keeps me going. I mean, as 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 a scholar, to see these eureka moments for my students and to hear them kind of articulate this stuff and to, you know, I mean, in many cases, I'll be quite frank with you, uh, black and white students alike um, sometimes come to me and they say, you know, since I've been in this class, I actually find that I'm, I'm, I'm angry. <laughs> and I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, why are you angry? Like, I feel like, you know, I've been misled for an extended period of my education, and I feel like, you know, a lot of things that I was feeling were going on, a lot of things that I tolerated and accepted were, in fact, you know, microaggressions that I shouldn't have tolerated, that I should have had a response to, but I just simply did not know how to think about it. I simply did not have a way to articulate it, to combat it, to be critical about it. And so I get in your class and we have these conversations, and, you know, suddenly now I'm given the language, I'm given the tools, I'm given the license to to confront this, to think about this, and now I'm suddenly having to question these things that, or I'm, I'm, I'm able to question these things that I've always had a sneaky suspicion were problematic before, right. but now that I have the language, the tools to actually impact them, now I'm like, I can't believe that this has been going on. And I, and, and so... I mean, so teaching for me has been, you know, has been exhilarating. Um, I, every now and then, though, 
I run into a kind of gatekeeper of the status quo power, and um, I'm challenged, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm a kinder and gentler kind of a scholar now. I used to be, you know, more of a, um, more of a, what would I say, more of a warrior scholar, which is to say I recognized that I was in a potentially kind of hostile space when it came to kind of trying to articulate these things um, in, in the classroom and particularly when certain students, and it tends to be white men, would be resistant to some of the things that, that I was saying and would test, in fact, my knowledge. And um, so I would routinely try to set people straight and remind them in a not-so-subtle way who was the scholar in the room and who was the student. Um, I have since um, become kinder and gentler, and I try to approach that now with an understanding that part of what I'm trying to get, you know, for some of these students, when you begin to kind of get them to, to you know, to, to see the things that you want them to see, the things that you raise uh, as questions, you're, it's not simply about an intellectual conversation. It's like for them telling them that this thing that has risen and fallen every day that they've been taught was the sun is in fact a figment of their imagination, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That they're not the center of the universe, right? So it's not just, you know, some intellectual debate for um, these folks. It's literally you're telling them that what they had imagined was how the world worked, what they had placed at the center of the world is somehow a farce, is somehow a social mm-hmm. construction. And, and, and that's, you know, that them is just not going to fly. And so you're going to be, you know, they put up walls of resistance. So I try now to try to help them see that, you know, that their experiences are real. The way they feel is very real. It's not that they, you know, the feelings that they have aren't real, but the feelings that they have are really born of somebody basically conditioning them not to see certain things for their entire life. So they, they might genuinely feel that, you know, poor people are poor because, you know, they just they don't like work and all they want to do is sit around sucking up um, other people's hard-earned money. They might have, you know, grown up in an environment where they genuinely were taught that and it, until they actually got introduced to a different perspective and they started having to grapple with things like institutionalized white supremacy and institutionalized white privilege, you know, that's, you know, that's not something that they would have, you know what I'm saying? Like that's real to them and trying to approach it as something real as opposed to um, just um, coming at them hard and trying to rock their worlds has, has proven to be much more effective. You know, you provide a very sobering examination of Trayvon Martin's brutal murder in this book. As you know, I think that you are one of the sharpest and most exciting thinkers on race, culture, and politics and gender. And I got to tell you, you, you know, you make it plain in this book, as uh, Mark Anthony Neal said in his review uh, of the book, and I am... Um, just so 
appreciative of you spending the evening with us talking about it and talking about your extended thoughts uh, that you provide. And I don't know how you talked to all these people and read all this stuff, and I'm running around like a crazy woman trying to find this movie Erasure. Uh, <laughs> and that's going to be my job tomorrow. David Eichhardt, thank you so very much for joining us Thanks in our common ground. You have to come back and teach us some stuff about um, how we can, you know, one of the things I was pointing out to um, Alan Counter is that when you read this book, you have four other books you have to read. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are going to read this book, you're gonna, while you're on your way to buy the book, Blinded by the Whites, Why Race Still Matters in 21st Century America, you got to buy Beloved, and if you haven't read it, you got to read it, and you got to have The Invisible Man by Ray. got to have it. got to have, have it. it. Hey, you David, thank you it. so much. I'm going to I'm, I'm boycotting um, my home state, so I won't be seeing you down there in Miami, but when they get it right, uh, <laughs> I hope to get together with you. And please give my love to your wonderful children Octavia absolutely. is absolutely growing up to be beautiful. Oh, she she is a she is a ball of fire. Love that child. Love that child. <laughs> so My boy come back soon. Too. They're great. Absolutely, absolutely. Soon. Hey, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. David H. Icard, and the book is Blinded by the Whites: Why Race Still Matters. In 21st Century America You've been listening to Our Common Ground And thank you so very much for being with us We're going to take a break And when we come back Deeper consciousness and getting the hell on out of here Thanks for being with us We rush into battle, we're soldiers We get hurt in the fight, we suck it up And we hold it down and we don't question Over a cliff Or did that only apply as long as Liv didn't have any flaws You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves, broadcasting bold, brave, black. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Look at her. She's the best. Pausing at our common ground for a moment of deeper consciousness. At our common ground, freeing our black mind and opening our black eyes. Here's the problem with the black condition. Black people don't like the way they're treated, but they don't necessarily dislike the system. The reason why you have Don Lemons and Russell Simmons and Oprah Winfrey's and Bill Cosby, the reason you had the previous guests who wanted to defend their lack of accountability to the black community, it's because black people suffer from what W.E.B. Du Bois called a double consciousness. We are African Americans which means we are the victim of Americanism, 
but then we are also loyal to the Americanism that victimizes us. That split consciousness that we have makes it difficult for us to move ahead because we are at the same time being separate from America. We are part of it by virtue of the conditioning that has been inflicted upon us, which is why you have black people say, I'm more American than I'm African. Or why do we even have to say we're African anymore? You know, the whole so-called post-racial America, uh, ever since Obama has taken office, which actually paved the way for Zimmerman to be acquitted, as a matter of fact. But we have to understand how, as the people, and the way we think and our mindset actually creates the context that allows us to be treated where that we are. And everything that happens racially in America happens within the political context. So normally a precedent is set that creates a certain type of climate that allows things to happen. And so basically, by black people buying into this illusion of inclusion, this belief that somehow tokenism, tokenism in the form of a black president automatically meant progress for the entire race, which was total nonsense, that created the context whereby the defense, the prosecution, the state's attorney, even Zimmerman's parents, his mother's and his mother and father, and my heart belongs to both of them, but even they were willing to say that they didn't think the case had anything to do with race. That would have been impossible had the Zimmerman Trayvon incident took place around the time of Hurricane Katrina or around the time of the Rodney King beating. It was the context of the illusion of black progress that actually set the stage for him to be exonerated because we, the black community, started questioning whether or not racism exists, started questioning whether or not we need separate black institutions, started questioning whether or not there's really discrimination based on race in America anymore by allowing the Hispanic or the immigrant or homosexual agenda to replace ours because allegedly our uh, civil rights agenda had been fulfilled as a result of Obama's election. It was our change in attitude towards racism in America. Hi. Some of us are beginning to wake up. We want to thank you again for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at JaniceOCG and like us on Facebook. Uh, make our presence us at Stitcher and tune in and in our archives. Good night, all, and have a good week. It was great to have David Archard with us tonight. Who are you when you don't know, when you should have done, but you didn't, when you should have, but you don't, when you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want? Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself, just who are you? Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Fly away with you 
Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. A special thanks to our chatters in our chat room. Join us on Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, and our website at OurCommonGround.com. Twitter, follow at Janice OCG. A great big thanks to my bromance, Dr. David H. Eichhardt. Have a great weekend. See you next week and join us on TruthWorks on Wednesdays and Fridays, 10 p.m. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time.